This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. According to my guests, there's a crisis going on in America, resulting in the unfair distribution of healthy foods. But it doesn't stop there. The response to the crisis by some is also being called into question by Dr. Garrett Broad. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Communications and Media Studies at Fordham University. Garrett is out with his new book, More Than Just Food, Food Justice and Community Change. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So, Garrett, what's the crisis and who's getting hurt by it? Yeah, you know, the, the, the amazing thing about the food system, when I talk about the food system, I mean all the different parts of our food system from, from where we grow the food to how it's processed to how it ends up on our plate. The amazing thing about our food system in the 21st century is that it, is, uh, it provides a source of abundant healthy food for so many people. Uh, you know, the reliability and the quality of food that we grow in the United States and around the world is unmatched in the course of human history. But at the same time as we have this abundance, there's serious injustice that happens in the food system as well, such that there are people in cities and rural areas all across this country who don't have access to that abundance. So that's what I see as the crisis, this sort of paradox of the food system today where it works remarkably well for some and others you know, suffer from inequality and injustice in their everyday lives. And these are called like food deserts. So food desert is a term that gets used uh, often it's, it's used by the United States Department of Agriculture, used, uh, you know, by, but you by don't Congress. Like it. So here's the issue with food desert. So w- food, the term, right? The term food desert. Folks use the term food desert. And what do you think when you think of a food desert? You, uh, the, the term desert. You think there's nothing there. Right. right? Um, the reality is that food deserts, uh, some folks like to call it food swamps. I think that's a little a better. Swamp. A little Because there's food there. It's not like there's nothing there. But the reality in, in these quote unquote food deserts or food swamps is that the, 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 the food that is there is not of high quality. Uh, it's, it's not nourishing. Uh, and when there is good food available, it's often much more expensive in those particular neighborhoods. And, and when I say those particular neighborhoods, that's sort of, you know, coded language, right? right. I'm talking about low-income neighborhoods. Right. I'm talking about neighborhoods of color, African-American, Latino neighborhoods. So low-income uh, New Yorkers, uh, they're going to these food swamps. There is unhealthy food there, so they're making the choice choices of unhealthy food because it's either easy and it's there and they don't have a choice of a good healthy veggies or fruit or they don't have the money to buy these veggies or fruit. Is that how you're narrowing it down? Yeah, I think I think that's a big part of it. So in, in a city like New York City, you know, there's lots of food to choose from, right? So it's not a complete desert, even in low-income communities. But what's the easy, what's the accessible, what's the affordable food option for folks? Um, and, and I also think that sometimes, you know, we, uh, those of us who don't experience food injustice or food insecurity, it's easy for us to look at folks in those neighborhoods and say, oh, you're just making a bad choice, right. you know? And I think that that's a real problem as well. A lot of folks are making very rational choices. You know, they're trying to get the most caloric, you know, intake for their buck, and that might be the unhealthy food. Uh, they're trying to, you know, give their kids something that they know they'll eat and know that they'll enjoy and that that, that will taste good because they can't afford necessarily to risk buying vegetables and and their kid that not... could go bad easily exactly. and they might not eat them. right. And so, you know, uh, the the issue again is not just about food, but it's about about, you know, systems of poverty and systems of, of, of access um, that I think we need a kind of systemic approach to deal with, with, with food being a big part of it, but not the only focus. If we just make the focus, hey, you know, we need to teach these people how to choose good, healthy food. 
right? We're ignoring all of these other built environment and social and economic issues that surround the all those choices that get made before that decision to buy, you know, the Cheetos as opposed to the broccoli. And you go into that in in depth in your book, More Than Just Food. So uh, in the book, you say humans move from foraging and hunting to farming and herding to food production. So where are we now? And what are the benefits and risks of our current food system? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. I mean, the, the agriculture transformed human society, right? Um, really, agriculture, you know, say 20,000 years ago or so, formed the basis for the kinds of societies that we developed and the kinds of civilizations that we've developed. And it, for many centuries, it remained pretty much the same kind of deal, subsistence farming in local areas. But into the late 19th century, 20th century, mid-20th century, industrialization happened. Uh, uh, chemicalization of the food system happened. At the same time as transportation networks and communication networks are, are coming into what we've you know come to, to recognize them as. And so now we have this global food system in which we're growing and sending food all over the country and all around the world. So we're, we're able to buy, you know, kiwis in December in Brooklyn, right? right. And that's a remarkable thing, right? I remember the first time I saw that, I go to the shop and I'm like, why is there watermelon in its winter? Like, I don't even understand this. And, and, and this is something that in just the last couple of decades, Decades, really, we've become accustomed to and come to expect. And again, for those of us who have the you know access and the the income to be able to go to grocery stores and restaurants where there's you know all imported this, uh, foods and fr- fruits nourishing and food and you know that that's great, right? But throughout the system, there are injustices, you know. And and the in, you know the the lens uh, that I try to take in my book and and in my research and in my activism is that if we want to fix you know the food injustice that consumers face, right? in low-income neighborhoods, we really need to take this kind of systemic lens and look all across the food system to say, hey, what about the farm workers, for instance? Mm. You know, you know, so much of our food is grown by uh, farm workers who are in very precarious situations, uh, often underpaid, if paid at all, you know, in, 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 in really exploitive situations. Uh, many folks undo- in the U.S., many folks who grow our food are undocumented uh, and, and subject to a lot of discrimination or exploitation because of that. Um, you know, what about animals in the food system? Do we treat them with, you know, fairness and ethics? Uh, you know, how about all the sort of environmental implications of the way we grow food and ship it all across the world and use pesticides? And what are the, you know, what are the water quality implications? And then again, this is not to say that, you know, some folks in the in the kind of what we refer to as the food movement, right, the kind of who say that there's problems with our, our, our food system. Some of those folks... I think, go too far sometimes in saying, you know, everything about the way we do industrialized food is wrong and we need to start from scratch. I think that that's a little unfair and and ignores some of the amazing strides that we've made. But we certainly can do a lot better. We certainly can do more to localize. We certainly can do more to make sure that access for everybody is available. We can certainly do more to make sure that labor 
protections are in place. Um, and that's what I think the food justice approach tries to do. Take this, you know, from seed and sea to your plate and into your body. Try to look across that whole system and try to ask questions and put policies and practices in place that try to advance justice and equity for all. Now, Garrett, can you break it down a little bit? So explain sort of in a nutshell, if it's fair to ask you to do that, the food justice movement. Yeah. So again, there have been, if, if anybody's seen the documentaries, right, Food Inc., or, uh, you know, heard about Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative over the years, or uh, read a book by Michael Pollan, or one of the, you know, there's all this alternative food activism that's been happening, you know, in, in for, for several decades, but really picked up steam the last, say, 10 years or so. And everywhere we look on TV, in the movies, and policy, we're hearing folks saying, you know, we need to improve our food system. We need to make it more healthy. We need to make it more environmentally sustainable. And, you know, for the most part, I, I see, you know, my, myself as part of that movement. Um, and, uh, and the activists that I write about in, in my book uh, are part of that movement, but, but they also make a critique of that movement. They say that a lot of that movement has sort of been defined by folks of privilege, uh, folks uh, from white communities, folks from folks from higher income communities. You know, it's a lot of that sort of Berkeley, California set, right? Who's looking across the country and saying, hey, you folks, you don't eat right. And here's how you can do better. So you have the, you know, um, wealthier trying to speak for low income neighborhoods and they might not be speaking the right language. Exactly. You know, not not just not speaking the right language, but not understanding the lived experience of folks who actually face inequity and injustice in their everyday life around food and other issues. And so what food justice activists tend to do, they tend to come from come from those lower income communities that are often the sort of target of food interventions. Um, they're often, you know, either from low income communities, from communities of color and, and try to organize within those communities and say, hey, we have a say in this, too. You know, and and if you listen to what we have to say, and our experiences and our potential solutions, we're probably going to have a lot better chance of actually fixing some of the health disparities that get people interested in a lot of these issues to begin with. Well, Garrett, what is causing the breakdown in the conversations between these two groups? Yeah, uh, you know, I think what's causing the breakdown in the conversations in these groups is that many folks don't think that they need to have a conversation to begin with. You know, folks sort of already come in with a set of solutions that they, you know, have read in their public health textbook, or they've just assumed because it's what they did in their neighborhood, um, that this is just going to be easy to map on to this other So they place. have a plan. They want to stick with the plan. And, you know, and it's easy and it makes you feel good, right? Oh, it makes me feel good. If I'm, you know, from a wealthy suburb somewhere, right? And I go into that, you know, rough neighborhood in the Bronx, and I build a garden, you know, and I look and the kids are smiling and I can leave and not come back and feel I've accomplished and feel something. like I've done something great. And, you know, I think it's time. And, and, you know, I'm by no this book is really I tried to reflect what's been happening on the ground for years of, of organizations and activists who have been doing this work and who have been making this critique. Um, and, you know, it's a critique that also has connections to histories within the environmental movement for instance. So there's a lot of connection between the food movement and the environmental movement. And what we saw in the environmental movement in the 1980s into the 1990s was the rise of the environmental justice movement. 
And these Talk were folks, little, just yeah, I was going to say explain that. Yeah, so the environmental justice movement basically said, you know, hey, we've had, you know, in the 1960s and 1970s, we had all these policies put in place to improve the environment and, you know, we had Earth Day and we've got all these folks, you know, who have become environmental advocates, but the environmental justice movement said, you know, you're missing you're missing a lot of us here. And in particular, you're missing out on, on, on what's happening in low-income communities and, and, and African-American communities and other communities of color, that the environment is not just about, you know, preserving beautiful mountains, uh, you know, in, in upstate New York, but it's also about making sure that there's not hazardous waste running through our neighborhoods in New York City or, you know, in New Jersey, right? And, 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 and so the environmental justice movement was sort of a, a wake-up call uh, and, and also what we saw in a lot of the mainstream environmental organizations was that there was not much representation uh, from communities of color, from low-income communities in terms of their leadership or their membership. So the environmental justice movement tried to sort of make environmentalism about where we live, work, and play. Mm-hmm. The food justice movement expands that to say it's where we live, work, play, and eat. And just to back it up a little, Garrett, so you said that these um, communities of color, there was no conversation about this, for example, waste. Uh, they weren't talking about it. Why not? I think within the communities, there is always conversation. Right? It's who listens. And, and, and what we see is, you know, neighborhoods that have been historically uh, disinvested in, that have been historically discriminated against, um, communities, both cultural communities and local communities. Uh, we see that there's a lot of knowledge in these neighborhoods about what the problems are and what needs to be done to fix it. Uh, but they don't have political power. They don't have uh, media power. You know, media plays an important role in shaping how we see what problems are and what solutions can be. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Fordham Assistant Professor Garrett Broad about his latest book, More Than Just Food, Food Justice and Community Change. Well, with all this movement, has there been any backlash from the corporate food production industry? Yeah, I, I think that uh, major sort of corporate food industry tend to be very, you know, skeptical of any activist groups in general. Their their line tends to be, you know, hey, things are better than they've ever been. You know, we have this abundance of food and you kind of need to trust us that we're fixing our problems. We know there are some issues, but they're minor and we're fixing them. And, you know, we need to just keep producing more and more food and that way we'll feed the world. You know, but the funny thing is that, you know, we hear about, you know, you, if you hear from sort of major food producers, they always are talking about, you know, the need to keep producing more and more food to feed the, you know, the nine billion people that are going to be in the in the world by 2050 or so. Um, the reality is we actually grow more than enough food now to feed everybody in the world. It's not a food production issue so much as it's a distribution issue. Um, distribution in terms of what kinds of food we're growing. You know, are we growing food that's, you know, just to be fed to animals to, you know, to, to for which it will become meat. And, and there's some allocation issues there. Or just, you know, is there tons of food going to waste? I mean, we waste so tons and tons and tons of food. And we often, the conversation about food waste is often about, you know, what you leave on your dinner plate and throw out or what's in your fridge that expires. 
that pales in comparison to the amount of food wasted actually in production and harvesting and transportation of food. So give me an example of this. Can you paint a picture for me? Of, of food waste in yeah. the I mean, you know, if if you are growing, uh, say, you know, a, a whole, uh, you know, field of tomatoes, you know, upwards of 25% or more of those tomatoes are going to fall to the ground, never be picked up and just go right back into the soil. And, and, and that's wasted food. I, I mean, they, it can potentially play a role in, you know, in, in regenerating the soil. But for the most part, why? Because it's expensive to pick up all the food. Oh. I mean, somebody's got to pick that stuff up, right? It's, it's cheaper often to just roll that back on into the soil and, you know, and take that as a loss than to actually, you know, so there, there are some initiatives to try to do, you know, what's called gleaning. So sending folks out into these, you know, these fields and picking up everything that is edible and, 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 you know, uh, but, but would have otherwise just gone to waste. So, you know, we have all this food waste, we have, you know, all this food that, that gets misallocated. So I think the industry tends to say, we just need to keep growing more and more. And what they're missing is, you know, there's a, there's a structural injustice issue here where we have not made it central to our food system to say, hey, the number one goal of our food system shouldn't necessarily be just to grow more, but it should be to make sure that the food we grow gets to people who need it. Now, Garrett, you didn't just, you know, do scholarly research on your book, More Than Just Food. You actually put on an apron, grabbed a ladle and helped serve with members of the group Community Services Unlimited. So what did you learn about the people that you were serving? Yeah, you know, I think yeah, this is a. It, I wrote it as a. It's a scholarly book. I tried to write it in a way that folks who were interested in these issues and passionate about these issues could uh, could dig into it uh, to a certain extent. But you know, for me as a scholar, I'm not from a neighborhood that has experienced food injustice. You know, I'm a white guy from the South Jersey suburbs, right? Uh, and I, I've, ne you know, food injustice is not something that's been, a, you know, something that I experience on an everyday basis. So for me to write about this issue, it seemed logical, you know, that I needed to spend some time learning about the people who understood it in their everyday lives. Uh, you know, I think that that was one just, you know, it's morally right. Uh, and also it just makes for better research, you know, if I didn't experience yeah, embed myself. So, you know, I take this kind of scholar activist, engaged scholar approach. Um, and so, as you mentioned, I worked with, uh, very closely with a particular group. I was living in Los Angeles for a while where I did my graduate work, a group called Community Services Unlimited. And they have a really interesting history in which I, I can talk a little bit about, um, and cause they were rooted in the Black Panther movement, right? So, right? so we'll get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Community, uh, so. I learned, you know, one, I learned about uh, the steadfast perseverance of folks, I think, first and foremost. I think in so many discussions about these food issues, again, we assume that folks in these communities, quote unquote, these communities, they don't know, they don't care, they just want to do what's easy, and that's it. And what I see in, in doing this work is how many you know, folks who wouldn't even necessarily consider themselves activists, right? So either not just folks working directly for this these food justice organizations, but just everyday community members, folks who show up at their workshops and, you know, who volunteer, that are just working hard to make their neighborhoods a better place. 
to do what's best for kids in particular, the sort of, you know, the, the concern that people have for children of their neighborhood and, 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 and also the, again, the skills and the knowledge that so many folks in, in these communities bring to the conversation about food, um, that, that so many people bring really remarkable cultural histories uh, and, and knowledge about how to produce food, how to grow food, how to prepare food, that, that so many other times when we look at, you know, programs to try to increase healthy food eating in, in neighborhoods, they ignore and they miss all of this, this, this capacity that exists within, within these communities. Now, did most of these conversations come from uh, interviews or did they come from you simply talking to whoever happened to be in line with you at that moment while you were serving? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I worked on this project for many years. I worked on this project for five plus years. Um, and I spent a lot of time, uh, just hanging out, volunteering. You know, I didn't just show up when I first met, uh, some of these activist groups, I didn't just show up and say, hi, my name's, you know, Garrett, I'm a researcher. Let me write about you. Mm -hmm. It was not that right. Um, because I knew I wouldn't be able to build trust that way. And I wouldn't really get to know what was happening as well. So, you know, I just worked for a while. It's just, I'm Garrett, the volunteer, you know, I'm here to, to help. And so I took a, you know, a, a research method that we call ethnography, participant observation. So I was there to participate. I I was there to observe. Uh, I was there to help out. Um, and so, uh, you know, through that process, a lot of it was just listening and having more informal conversations about what are people doing? Why are they doing it? You know, where are they coming from? What are their motivations? What are their goals? What needs to be done for these community based justice groups to be sustainable and to grow? Yeah. You know, I think it's a it's a multi pronged challenge. I think that um you know, one is there's, you know, a lot of funding that goes towards food programs. Um, from, By the way, where's that funding from? A lot of it comes from the government. Uh, the USDA has a variety of grant programs. A lot of it is private foundation money. Uh, the Kellogg Foundation has funded a number of programs over the years. Other major uh, sort of, you know, national and regional foundations. Um a lot, and, and then there's also funding. A lot of these groups are turning their attention towards sort of making their own money, so building kind of for-profit aspects of their nonprofit organizations to, to like fund. Like farms. Like farms, like, you know, uh, community-supported agriculture boxes and, uh, you know, farmers markets. Uh, CSU, Community Services Unlimited in L.A., is, is actually working to build a, a neighborhood grocery store and community space, uh, bringing in food from local farmers. Um, so I think, you know, for the funding that's coming in, I think we could definitely do a better job of making sure that the kinds of programs that are getting major funding from government, from private foundations, even from corporations, reflect the communities themselves. A lot of times the groups that are the write the best grant application aren't necessarily the ones that are the most grounded in the community. Um, and so I think working actively to make sure that 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 is the case is important. Um, you know, two, I think there needs to be uh, increasing 
collaboration between these different groups ac across the country. It's really easy to sort of work on your project, you know, in the Bronx or in Queens or in East New York and sort of do it in your own little area and not really know what else is going on elsewhere. Um, I think there are, are definitely opportunities to build relationships, to build sort of a, a, towards a critical mass where these groups would, would come together and, and use their power to, again, to to tell their story better, but also to build more regional kind of infrastructures that might be helpful. Um, there's a lot that can happen at the city level. You know, I actually recently uh, met with some folks from uh, the mayor's office and their food policy uh, program, and they're really interested in supporting good work of, of, of community groups that are, are advocating for this more systemic approach. Um, and I think that we need, as a culture, a bit of a, a, a reframing of what this issue is. Uh, and, and one of the things that I'm trying to do with this project is just sort of shout that from the mountains, which is to say, you know, just fixing food deserts. We, we started this conversation talking about food deserts. Well, there's been research to show that just plopping a grocery store down in a, in a food desert, quote unquote, doesn't actually transform the neighborhood, doesn't actually fix people's, you know, quote unquote, fix people's, uh, you know, uh, eating habits, doesn't make everybody healthy. Right. And so a lot of people are taking that research to say, oh, this whole we shouldn't even be you know, looking at food at all. Well, no, that's not the takeaway either. The takeaway should be. Can we, you know, put good food in neighborhoods and connect that to improving the overall health and vitality of that neighborhood? Can we make sure that the, the you know, people who get hired at that new, you know, food outlet are from the local neighborhood? Can we make sure that there are, you know, culturally relevant foods available, culturally relevant, uh, you know, cooking classes and activities and events? I want to know what inspired you to write this book. Hmm. I was, uh, I, I think, I, I, I'm, so what inspired me to write this book? I've been interested in food as an area of study for a while. I, I first got interested in food, sort of reading about the environmental impacts of food uh, for a long time. I, I just didn't, didn't make that connection that the way we grew food had a big impact on our environmental health and environmental sustainability. And I've also always been interested in how do I use my privilege uh, you know, uh, to advocate for and and work with folks who are less privileged and 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 facing inequality and injustice. And so uh, I, I saw this project as a way to sort of blend those two issues that I thought were really important. I see food as as really valuable, as really powerful. I think it's important to advocate for social, economic, and racial justice. And here's this movement that's happening right in front of me and was happening when I was living in Los Angeles, you know, a couple blocks south of where I was at the University of Southern California. And so, you know, it, it's always been fascinating to me. I grew up in I grew up in New Jersey, in southern New Jersey, uh, in a in a town called Marlton, about 10 minutes from Camden. And it was always remarkable to me that I could be so close and so far, mm -hmm. you know, that, that I was 10 minutes, but a world away. And as an academic, so often our universities are in places like that. 
wink, wink, here we are in the middle of the Bronx at Fordham University having this conversation. Uh, and not far, we have some of the highest concentrations of poverty, highest, you know, food injustice, uh, environmental injustice, food swamps, food swamps <laughs> you know, all sorts of env- histories of environmental injustice. Um, and so, you know, it, it seems to me a great opportunity to use that position. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I also I, I was inspired to do this book in particular and do this research in particular because I was just really dissatisfied with the kind of patronize what I saw is often a patronizing way we were talking about um, problems with, you know, with food in, in quote unquote food desert areas. I felt like the, there was a story to be told that was um lifting up the voices of of folks who are doing this from the kind of food justice perspective and, and from within those communities, but also offering some critique of that potentially too. You know, I'm not here to just be a cheerleader for activists. I want to make this work better and I want to make it more effective. And I think that where I stand um, as a person and as a as an academic, my position allows me to learn from those folks, but also to to bring in some of my you know what I've learned studying social movements, studying social change, and offer some suggestions, critiques, recommendations about how do we make this a stronger movement moving forward. So, Garrett, can I ask what's your least favorite vegetable or fruit? <laughs> my least favorite vegetable or fruit. I, you know, I uh, I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. I've been a vegetarian for vegan for about 10 years. Vegetarian uh, or vegan? I'm vegan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been vegan for about 10 years. I actually don't really like mushrooms very much, which is tough because my wife loves mushrooms. And so I often am just... So I just I'll I'll eat it, you know, but but it's really more of a texture. Thing yeah, I hear for that. Me. A friend of mine said they feel like ears. Yeah, <laughs> it's just something. And, you know, it's one of those things that you sort of grow up if you don't like something and then you just have it in your head. You don't like it anymore. I can go with like a good grilled portobello. OK, but a lot, a lot of mushrooms. I just <laughs> not get doing a little, it. Yeah. <laughs> not so doing that's, it. I've never been asked that question in a setting <laughs> like this, but I'm glad. So moving forward, um, more than just food, food justice and community change. Garrett, where can we get your book? Uh, it's available through the University of California Press um, and also on Amazon uh, as a paperback. Uh you can also check out my website, garrettbroad.com. There's a couple of different things on there. I've got a, a, a book trailer, a, a little film trailer that I made as well for that. Uh, and some other things I've written that are, are not just the book. You know, I would love folks to buy the book, read the book. But for me, what's most important is getting these issues out there and having a conversation about these issues. So if you go to my website, you can see a number of discussions about the, about the broader issues and, and things that I've written and that have been written about the project. I'd like to thank Garrett Broad. His book is More Than Just Food, Food Justice and Community Change is now out by the University of California Press. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kyle McKee. You can friend Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. <laughs>